Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Yeah, exactly. And of course, those higher oil prices just feeding into the inflationary narrative. So let's get more on that now with Jeffrey Cleveland. He is chief economist at Payton and Regal. So, Jeff, I, I don't know how much of Lisa and I's conversation you just heard there, but talking about the inflationary forces at work in this economy, do you think that central banks like the Fed are underestimating it still? I No, I don't think so. I I. I think this is, you know, very difficult topic and popular talk- topic among investors, but um, and there's a lot of noise. So, but you have to go back to taking in maybe a longer term perspective. Commodity prices, uh, the price of oil, for example, doesn't tend to give forecasters such as ourselves a good lead on where inflation will be in, you know, a year's time. And I think central banks know that, you know, and they're taking that in, into consideration. Although a lot, a lot. this is this is really dangerous to say. These are, I think, the four. This time is different. The four <laughs> most dangerous words in the economics <laughs> profession. The idea here that we have oil prices that are climbing at a time when supplies might not naturally increase to compensate this. The business case has changed in an era that's trying to decarbonize. How much does that change the backdrop for you? You know, it does. It's a, it's a factor, but I, th- I always come back to okay. W- when you're talking about inflation, you're talking about a general increase in all prices, right? You're you're not just talking about particular sectors. And if you know what we're seeing is driven more by the supply side, which is uh, the case in a lot of areas. We did our our chart of the week, for example, on natural gas prices on Friday, and you know there are some you know very interesting supply side stories there that I think explain a big chunk of the move. If, if it's coming from the supply side, I don't think that's inflation. I, mm-hmm. that, that's really the key. It's it's something you know idiosyncratic, and it seems like you know the difficulty right now is we have a bunch of these type of stories piling up all at once, right? So you yeah. have you have the the crude oil stories, you have uh, natural gas, we have bottlenecks in all kinds of areas. I th- I attribute that to this is just a very unique macro environment. Um, but I still would caution investors from jumping to the conclusion that we're going to have a persistent inflation from here. Um, I think you can fall back on some pretty good, reliable indicators. One we got on Friday, for example, in the U.S., in that personal income and spending report, you, mm-hmm. you, the Dallas Fed tabulates the trimmed mean um, PCE. It's an alternative uh, core inflation measure, and it's hanging in there right around 2% year over year. And I think that's where, when the dust settles on all of this, we will, we will see consumer prices right around that 2 to 3% uh, range. Well, and a huge question within this, Jeffrey, is how much wages are rising to meet higher prices on pretty much everything you can think of at the pump, at the grocery store, on your holiday gifts. We obviously have the jobs report coming up on Friday. I would argue it's going to be a pretty big one given September is supposed to be the month where kids are back at school. Those additional unemployment benefits have rolled off. It's supposed to be the great return to the labor market. Do you think that actually materialized? I'm a little skeptical. I think, you know, we saw a very weak August report that was driven in large part by the the slowdown in leisure and hospitality. I don't know, you know, just anecdotally walking around Los Angeles, for example, if we saw a big surge in hiring in the month of September, I think we're still 
under the, you know, the weight of the pandemic of the variant, at least for the September data. So maybe that story will have to wait for in the fall. I'm hopeful that uh, I'm wrong and, and the labor markets back, bounce back much more quickly. On the wage question, though, that, that you brought up, I think it's a really essential one. And the only thing I can say, I, I would urge investors, um, again, to look at the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, and you, you can break down the different uh, categories by you know, income level, by hourly versus non-hourly workers. And I think what you'll find is we are seeing wage pressure, no doubt, but it is confined mostly to um, you know the lower wage tiers uh, of the spectrum, so mm-hmm. definitely seeing a lot of upside pressure there on wages. That is, um, that is, you know, that affects businesses. That affects uh, small and medium-sized businesses. Yes, but if you look at the broader wage trends, um, you can look at a median, you know, uh, wage growth. It's still running three to four percent per annum. Um, nothing worrisome in terms of wage price spirals. So I think investors, again, if we're, we're trying to look out a year from now and, and understand where inflation might be. And the, the wage data is not telling us a worrisome longer term story. If you recall the 1990s, I'm sure you do, right? We had five to six percent medium wage growth and we still had you know, moderate inflation right around two to three percent. So you, you can even see wage growth pick up from here which I hope it does, and, and still not have a runaway inflation story. Which really raises the issue, Jeffrey, of how much is being priced in that is, and I dread using this word because I will get hate mail, stagflation, mm-hmm. and how much this is just sort of a new reflationary trade that basically we've gone past the peak reflation, and we're now heading into a normalization, and frankly, it is choppy with higher prices at sometimes uh, than growth and, and sort of this mismatch in how things come back online. How do you distinguish between those two scenarios, which are very different, with one not leading to an expansion and the other one leading to an expansion that's just more tempered, when you speak with your fellow uh, with your your fellow members of Paid and Regal. Yeah, I think you're right. We did see growth uh, peak in the second quarter. Uh, we definitely saw slower growth in the U.S. in the third quarter. We've shaved our, our GDP estimate for the full year now to we started at 7.4 percent for 2021. Now we're down to 5.5. So mm. we've shaved growth. So growth has slowed. Is it stagflation, though? I, I don't think so. I think it's really tough to do this, but there's so much noise right now. Growth slowing to, you know, for the year, five and a half percent. To me, that's not stagflation. The reason you have to go back, I think, to answer your question directly, why What's what's causing this? Uh, you know, we think it is pandemic related. We think it is bottlenecks uh, on the supply side that have, have knocked down our growth estimates. And some of that we will we will get payback on in 2022, we think. So it's it's not a more, you know, worry where we would get more worried, I guess, on the growth front is if it was demand had slumped off. And, and that's not really what you know we think we're seeing here. Demand, you know, particularly from consumers and households will remain very, very strong, we think, um, throughout this rest of the year and into 2022. Um, so it's it's not a demand slump type story. It's, you know, it's these idiosyncratic supply side things that are holding back uh, growth. So that, that's one part of it, just discerning, OK, what is driving the, the slowdown that we're seeing? And then the inflation, you know, is inflation going to remain elevated, um, you know, on a sustained basis, more than a, a couple of quarters? And we think the answer, again, as as I uh, belabored already, is no. So we, we don't I can't put myself in the uh, stagflation camp uh, quite yet. 
All right, Jeffrey, I want to ask you, you were talking about all the noise that's out there. There certainly has been a lot of noise down in Washington, D.C. I know that's pretty much always the case, but it seems like it's gotten a lot louder as of late. You have the ongoing question mark around the debt ceiling. You have discussions around the infrastructure package really at a stalemate now in October 31st deadline. How would it change your view on the U.S. economy if we don't see that trillions of dollars in longer term economic spending materializing? Well, I think we will get something done. I can't tell you when. Uh, it's you know, impossible to just to figure that out. But I don't think it's going to be the three and a half trillion. So to the extent that, and it does seem, you know, when you look at the headlines and market movements, market is sort of fixated on that three and a half trillion dollar number, and that could disappoint um, some investors if, if we don't get it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to get that that number. For us, though, the big fiscal pulse already happened. You know, we're yeah. already on the other side of it. You, you look at transfers to households, you can look at, you know, quarter over quarter. Um, those were actually down in, in the second quarter relative to a year ago, because we, we saw this huge surge in, in spending or transfers to households. That's done. And for us, that that's really the, the, the more critical question. Um, households, fortunately, you know, they're, they're being, you know, they're going back into employment. They still have pretty ample savings, so that'll be good. But the, the big party in terms of the fiscal side, I think it's done. So that's, I think, something to, to keep in mind. Uh, for investors, too, I, you know, the, the debt ceiling is important. I, I, you know, I guess we're, we're playing um, a game of brinksmanship here, and it probably lasts you know, into mid-October, maybe later. Ultimately, yeah. we think that does get resolved, perhaps something similar to what we saw in 2013. I think the other Washington story, though, is the, uh, the Fed, the Fed board, the, the possible departure of Jerome Powell, and then two other spots that yeah. uh, look like they're going to open up. And that could change. That could change. I think what that gives you is a little a, a more dovish Fed. Um, and if that's right, that is more important, I think, for for markets, uh, for risk assets than, you know, the debt ceiling or, you know, I hate to say it to my, my political strategist, but I think that will the Fed will ultimately be more important than the, the size of the fiscal uh, hmm. bill, the, the, the budget that ultimately, ultimately they get decided on. Monetary policy for the win. Thank you so much, Jeffrey Cleveland. He is chief economist at Payton and Regal. There is, of course, the big elephant in the room for anyone who covers markets right now. It is inflation. What your viewpoint on it will determine much of how you position for it. However, which way is up in the air in terms of depending on who you speak with? We're going to speak right now with Ethan Devitt, Chief Investment Officer at Moneda with $27.4 billion of assets under management. Ethan, before we get into your inflation call, how do you use this to shape what you want to buy? Inflation is something we look at um, always as a, a part of the, the factors that drive where our portfolio should be positioned. Our goal is that our client portfolios should be resilient to many risks, in particular inflation. So we look at the different components of that portfolio, such as equities and real assets, and want to ensure that we have enough diversification into them because some have explicit linkage to inflation, such as real assets and real estate, and then some have de facto um, positive correlation to inflation, such as equities. Well, let's talk about some of those equities. The NASDAQ 100 is now down 2% on the day. We can maybe attribute some of that to higher yields. How do you think about technology and the place it does or does not have in your portfolio right now? 
Technology will always be a huge component of our portfolio, particularly because many clients will have exposure to large cap stocks. And quite frankly, the FANGs have really comprised such a large percentage, an increasingly large percentage of those large cap portfolios. So it is a linchpin. And we actually saw that they performed very well. Obviously, we spoke your earlier guests about the stay-at-home stocks and how they and really were quite resilient throughout the COVID crisis. And any time there's a crisis of confidence, they do seem to rebound. So technology will always have a huge component there. We do look to have balanced portfolios across, across, across growth and value. But the fact is, with technology and interest rates, um, if anybody does use a DCF valuation as interest rates rise, well, that will make the future earnings look that bit less than technology. So that seems to be part of the correlation that we're seeing. What do you? How do you view the uh, the sort of decline that we saw last week that's carrying over to today? Is this the beginning of something bigger, or is this a blip that you want to dig in and kind of start buying? I do think it is not the beginning of something bigger because what we're seeing is a tremendous amount of assets on the sidelines. They've been sitting there waiting to get exposure to equities. And what we see is that every time there is a correction in equity markets or even just a, just a, a blip, as you say, or just a crisis of confidence, it doesn't last very long. And that's the real phenomenon of the current cycle is that none of these mm-hmm. adjustments last for very long because there's such a, a large amount of, of money on the sidelines looking to go in. Where, where do the sentiment dip come from? Certainly, there's a lot of backdrop now in terms of both geopolitical concerns. We're looking globally. We've seen the specter of a large-scale default. There's a political gridlock again. The news on the virus seems to be moderating, and that probably has not really factored into sentiment. But certainly, the, the tech news you mentioned earlier around Facebook, that is just a reminder of the ability for regulatory whiplash to occur, not just in China, but also here. Well, I'm so glad you brought up China because we continue to watch the Evergrande saga unfold day by day by day. And it's that's frankly not the only issue you have to worry about there. You have the ongoing regulatory crackdown. You have a broader slowdown in economic growth. How do you think about China right now and the risk that it poses? Certainly, we've had to completely rethink how we think about China as a source of risk. There is even a suggestion among some commentators that China has become uninvestable, such has been the frequency of these negative surprises that we've seen time and time again. It seems every week there is a negative surprise. What I would say is that China is only going to be a portion of an emerging markets allocation. And even emerging markets is only a portion of a non-US allocation. So it really is quite risk controlled within a portfolio. And as for whether that is sustained as that portion, well, that really remains to be seen. Certainly the risk reward has changed dramatically. And what we can see for China is just as it was first in and first out of the pandemic, it can certainly be a harbinger for for concerns that will perhaps go more global. And the the Evergrande is a great example. Some traders in this market have never seen um, any kind of a large-scale default of that nature. The last time we saw it was in 08, and many people's whole careers have been built since 08. So that simply is a reminder of just the specter of a large-scale default, what it can look like, and how it can it can ripple through the system, not just for other real estate developers, but for banks, financial institutions as well. It is a salutary reminder, I believe, of some of the risks that can actually be there bubbling under the surface. Are you more concerned about the financial risk here or the economic risk of a slowdown in China percolating through the entire ecosystem, through the supply chain disruptions and other uh, sort of transmissions that are more insidious and slow moving? Certainly, I would say that the impact of uh, slowdown in China is going to be less felt over here. The U.S. has been the engine of developed market markets for some time. And I don't see a slowdown in China as really having tremendous ramifications here. We've already had 
significant change in the trade conditions, and that is, is likely to persist. So I don't see that the U.S. is particularly dependent on China. But certainly China does affect the fortunes of the surrounding emerging markets. And for that reason, any slowdown there would just be poor for global growth. All right, Ethan Devitt, CIO of Moneta, giving us her market outlook and her take on inflation. And Lisa, the China story getting a little bit more interested today when you talk about the trade narrative that Ethan just brought up. Uh, We obviously got some harsher words out of the Biden administration. We're waiting for the U.S. trade representative to speak uh, later on today, but basically saying they're not holding up their end of the bargain when it comes to that phase one deal. Right now, we are looking at markets that are going deeper into the red. And just now, Kaylee, as you just pointed out, a headline crossing that New York City says that 95% of school staff is vaccinated following the mandate that went into effect today that Mm -hmm. teachers had to be at least have gotten their first shot. Otherwise, they could be put on leave. And they're saying that they've got 95% in compliance. Interesting to see. Uh, Really you know, being uh, sort of on the precipice of this debate of mandates. Yeah, absolutely. And you're seeing it play out so differently in different states and different sectors where there have been more legal challenges to this. But it's pretty remarkable the jump we have seen in vaccination rates as soon as a mandate goes into place. Some of the hospital systems had vaccination rates around 40 percent. And now they're also in the 90s as well, now that you've put people's jobs on the line. So it is something that is working even for all of the debate that's around it. And this really translates into just where we are in coming out of the pandemic and how this translates to a market call, as we do seem to be on the downward swing in the number of cases and hospitalizations. Ryan Jacob has to evaluate this along with the Fed, along with the debt ceiling debate, along with all of the mess uh, in Washington, D.C. and beyond, all the way to China. Uh, a CIO of the Jacob Internet Fund uh, talking here with us. And the reason, Ryan, why I say that is because you kind of have to dovetail a rates call, a global macroeconomic picture with your view on tech more than ever. How do you sort of gauge this connection between rates and the tech sector? Well, I do think we're a bit in the minority in that we're not that concerned about higher rates for our particular portfolios, whether it's the ETF or the mutual funds, uh, because we tend to focus on smaller mid-cap uh, tech companies. Uh, in terms of the large, uh, higher interest rates, we're really seeing more of an impact on the large and mega-cap uh, mm-hmm. technology companies that, quite frankly, will have a more difficult time uh, overcoming the headwind of higher rates in terms of revenue and earnings growth. More of the companies we focus on are higher growth companies and should be able to uh, overcome it, basically. Well, there's the rates headwind. There's also a China headwind for technology, Ryan. And I was looking through some of the holdings of your fund and saw that Alibaba and Tencent are in there. How worried are you about that crackdown that's happening in China? And does that make you want to rethink some of those holdings? Well, we have been shareholders in Chinese companies for over 15 years now. So we've seen a lot of highs and lows. Admittedly, this is probably one of the low points that we've seen in terms of, um, you know, what's happening in China and the ramifications for these companies. Uh, And admittedly, we had cut back our positions considerably. They're probably two of our smallest positions at this point. Um, And quite frankly, until conditions improve or we see it, uh, you know, I doubt we'll increase our allocation. What type of technology companies are you seeing as the greatest opportunity at a time when we already have priced in some of the shift to working from home or we already have priced in some of the internet prowess of the likes of Google and Facebook and sort of the dominance that they have there? What types of tech should we be looking for? Well, that is the biggest challenge this year. Which companies can build on the success of last year 
uh, and which companies will have a, a fall off or kind of come off a bit of a sugar high in terms of the impact to their business. And so the companies we're focusing on are the ones where broader adoption has been accomplished, and now we see an acceleration. And that, that's what we've seen across our portfolio. So, um, you know, there's a host of names uh, that, that really fall in that category, but it's a very, very tricky environment. Well, give us some of those names, Ryan. Can you get specific? Wh- which companies in particular are most fascinating to you right now? Well, you know, one of the companies, it, it's one of our larger positions, Optimize RX, uh, basically has electronic health record uh, advertising and communication services. So this is something that the drug companies were very interested in pre-COVID. Once COVID hit and sales reps could no longer go out, no more industry conferences or events, uh, they allocated more money to digital and across different platforms. Optimize benefited from that. And then I think when a lot of the drug companies realized the returns they were getting from these investments, uh, they've been basically accelerating ever since, even even with the prospect of going back to more traditional methods to uh, advertise their products. Um, and Optimize has seen that the bump last year and now an acceleration in their pipeline this year. Ryan, before we let you go, when you take a step back, everyone wants to be a tech company. McDonald's wants to be a tech company. (laughs) Who doesn't want to say that they are on the cutting edge of what's next? How do you parse out what actually fits with your Band-Aid? It's a great question um, because uh, every company incorporates tech. And it's it's not an experimental part of their budget. It's core to what they do. So um, it's becoming harder and harder. Uh, The fund is the Jacob Internet Fund, the mutual fund. Uh, but now every, you know, that was launched over 20 years ago, and, and things have changed and evolved. And uh, it, it is a constant challenge. It actually widens the investment universe for us. So uh, actually, in some ways, it's been helpful. All right, Ryan Jacob, CIO of the Jacob Internet Fund, talking to us about all things technology. Thank you so much. Right now, I want to shift to one area that has been hot and that has been commodities. And the interesting thing is, that we have seen stocks sell off. We've seen bonds sell off in the past month. The one outlier has been oil. What has not been an outlier? Gold. It still is not acting materially as a hedge. Perhaps it's up a little bit today, but in general has not. What gives? When can this act as a traditional hedge against volatility? Ashraf Rizvi probably is wondering the same thing and probably has an answer. Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Gilded joining us here uh, in, in New York. Right now, Ashraf, can you give us a sense of the dynamic behind gold and why it hasn't benefited from the risk off feel in both stocks and bonds over the past month? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on the program. Um, I think uh, gold is is caught in this um, comparison of is it inflation? Um, I think most people believe that we are seeing inflation, whether it's transitory or not. Um, the impact of potentially in- real interest rates going up with uh, uh, the taper. Um, physical demand, of course, has been increasing. Uh, but the dollar has been strengthening as well. So the combination of these four factors has kind of gotten gold in a bit of a quagmire where it can't decide whether it's really going up or down. That being said, uh, I think we know that historically it has, over long periods of time, done very well, um, whether it's uh, in an inflationary environment or in a even in a deflationary environment, particularly now that we're suffering through this uh, mm-hmm. uh, significant increase in debt that's uh, happening all across the world uh, by governments. So you see a case for holding gold here, at least in the longer term. How does what you do at Gilded enable people to own gold? Yeah, that's a great question. I 
think the the key here is that gold has, as an asset class, been difficult to hone. So what we've really focused on is how can we make physical gold ownership functional? And so that really means making it digital, mobile, and usable. So let's leverage 21st century technology, a smartphone, a mobile uh, mobile device, uh, a mobile app, and blockchain to be able to provide that physical ownership direct to you uh, in a nice, easy way where you can uh, be the direct owner of the property rather than a fractional banking system where it's an IOU, where you can leverage it to be able to do things like not only buy and sell, but even in certain countries, we're already able to send or gift and, um, and then be able to do other things. For example, earn a, ultimately a return or um, be able to borrow or lend against it as well. Ashraf, how much is this if you can't beat them, join them? Basically, people saying that Bitcoin was taking over for gold because people didn't want to have to store the thing and they wanted to have some sort of store of value. How much is this saying, okay, we get that, we get that. All right, but we'll, we'll give you the benefits of that, but we'll give you the absolute reality of gold, which has you know, lasted the, the t- test of time. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, Ease of use is always paramount, and uh, I believe that one of the things that's happened with digital assets is they have made it easier for people to access. Um, Physical gold has been hard for people to access, and so I think we're making it easier uh, by making it digital, mobile, and usable. And most importantly, perhaps, is that that marketplace is huge. It's a $12 trillion marketplace, uh, probably the single most widely held asset in the world. Uh, Billions of people own it. Uh, most every major central bank does. So it's really time to bring it into the 21st century rather than just being what a lot of people have claimed, which is that it's a it's a, a very expensive paperweight. But uh, by making it, uh, making it 21st century, we can make it uh, usable for everyone and very functional. Yeah, you know, Ashraf, a lot of Bitcoin bulls call Bitcoin digital gold, but you are actually literally doing <laughs> digital gold over at Gildan. That is Ashraf. Rizvi, he is the CEO and founder of Gilded, talking to us about gold, which, I, yes, Lisa, she's smiling at me. I just love the idea of <laughs> a, a really expensive paperweight. We now don't have paper to even weight down because everything's digital anyway. I mean, yeah. it just sort of talks about the other era. Yeah. Who even needs pens anymore? It's a brave new world. <laughs> Brave new world where people don't need gold to hedge against anything. Gold, though, is getting a little bit of a bid today on a day when the markets are down. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.